Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. All right, hey, welcome everybody. Uh, Thanks for checking out this podcast. We have things a little bit different. Normally we have had Pastor John here with us, but he is out of town this week. Uh, So I'll just let everybody introduce themselves. Dad, you want to start off? Uh, I'm Dad. I'm Harold Gingrich. Father to all. Well, not father to everybody, but to all in this room. Yes. And uh, the one that God laid on the heart of starting Eden Worship Center. So for better or worse, that's me. (laughs) Jason. Gingrich, like the others in the room, oh. he is my favorite second son. Yeah, I thought I thought we were actually I thought we were actually going to have the revelation. The moment we've all known to be true was just about to come to the surface. He's my favorite second son. He's my favorite first son. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I'm for this son, and I'm for this son, and what can we say? <laughs> That was an attempt at a political joke. Yes, we're off to a roaring start. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. (laughs) Check it out next week. Vote early and vote often. Okay. No. Jason, introduce yourself. Um, Pastor of Maple Grove Church, Topeka, Indiana. If things don't work out here... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Maple Grove's just right down the road, everybody. Check it out. It's pretty awesome. All right, so uh, what we've been doing... Uh, in the last couple weeks is attempting to uh, have a midweek podcast that is a discussion on the sermons that we've been doing on Sunday. So we've just, we're like two weeks into a series in Revelation. And so we want to be able to open that up for uh, questions, thoughts, concerns, comments from you as we have people in church who can text in a number. Uh, last week we had one question sent in. This week we had, you guys are going to be impressed. Zero questions sent in. So that I, either means the sermon was fabulous. That's what I was thinking. Or who uh, preached? Who cares? That was me. That was you. Yeah. No doubt about no it. No questions. No questions left. <laughs> the mysteries <laughs> of the ages have yeah, been clarified. Well, that's what Revelation means. That's true. Unveiled. And, and you know what? Wow. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Mission Good accomplished. Uh, the last guy who said mission accomplished. Uh, was a little bit embarrassed by having said those words. <laughs> yeah. We actually saw it, like, after he was president, George W. Bush, we saw him at a pro-life rally, and uh, he's like, yeah, I said some dumb stuff as president. Like, he had this great sense of humor about himself. He's like, let me kick it off with this one. Maybe you remember this. And this is, like, years into the war. Mission accomplished. And the whole, and he just cracks up. For real? Yeah. And, wow. and the whole room's laughing. Like, he had a whole string of, like, dumb stuff that he said. But his whole premise was, man, if you don't ever 
get over yourself and the fear of being embarrassed. You're never going to do anything. You got to jump in and go. And see, the like, great thing in there is we were not born in the same year, but we were both born on July 6th. So, what can I say? You're halfway to being famous or infamous. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, uh, what I do want to do is talk a little bit, uh, since we don't have questions, and seriously, if you guys have questions on uh, the text, we would love to hear those. Uh, we, we do want to take time to thoughtfully, biblically answer those in this forum. Um, but if you, you don't know, have questions when you read the book of Revelation, you are misunderstanding it. Something's gone horribly wrong. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just wanted to interject that. Good. Good. Uh, so because we don't have a whole bunch of questions to get to, uh, what I want us to do is just talk about the, the thing that we talked about on Sunday with these. Uh, we studied Revelation 2 and 3. So it's Jesus' letter to the seven churches in Asia. And um, seven, of course, throughout the Bible, but especially in Revelation, this number of completeness and wholeness that he wasn't just writing to those seven churches. He was, mm -hmm. but he was also writing to all the churches. This is representative of all the churches, and that includes us. And so we can face the same dangers they did of, and the four that we talked about, I mean, there's a lot more dangers that the church faces, but uh, I think every age faces the danger of false teaching and false teachers coming into the church. Mm -hmm. uh, what it means that we test that which is true, we expose that which is false. Uh, every church can fall into the danger of believing and trusting in their own orthodoxy. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the word orthodoxy, uh, it's just this idea of right teaching, right believing that uh, it seems like every church has that. Like, haven't you guys seen that? Like every church has this thing, no matter who they are. Well, what we believe is right. right. And, and see, I think, uh, and this, this is just a, an unabashed attempt to get invited back onto this podcast. But uh, I thought one of the great things that Matt said Sunday was, there's a temptation that we want to read into each church, different church ages and different things. But the reality is, when you look at all seven of these churches, you can find elements of each one in the congregations that we are a part yeah. of. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the temptation, as has been discussed before, is when you go into Revelation, you're trying to figure out the sign symbols, seals and woes, and all of this stuff, and the mark of the beast. And you go through all of these spiritual gymnastics to figure out the eschatology when at the heart of Revelation is that Jesus Christ is king. He is victorious. And in specifically, as we looked last week in these letters to the churches, there are elements of weakness and sin in every one of our congregations. And we need to just be alert to that and uh, not allow ourselves to spiritually drift into mediocrity. Yeah. Semper reformanda. Always, always reforming. reforming. Good. Uh, <clears throat> a third one is trusting in good works, that because we think we're doing the right thing the right way, well, that's how I know I'm a Christian. In fact, I think most people who, if you ask them if, if they're a Christian and then you, you say give a defense for that, they're going to point to their good works. Right. Like, that's how I know. So uh, we'll get to that one. And then tolerating sin. I mean, that's not a problem at Eden. I, I hear at Maple Grove, that's, big that's time. the big one. Yeah. You know, We're big sin tolerators. tolerators. Yeah. They spit you out of my mouth. <laughs> it's not true. They're great people. Uh, so let's just let's get, kind of dive into those. 
Um, with the, the caveat at the beginning, one of the uh, quotes that I had from Sunday, Richard Phillips said, Christ's people need to hear Christ's voice. The tendency is for our ideas about the church to veer into selfish or worldly directions unless we are constantly under the correction of our sovereign Lord. That that is, that is the need for our church and every church, man, not to hear our voices. I mean, I, I'm glad you guys are, are listening to this. I, I hope it's making you think about some of these issues in the book of Revelation, what scripture has to say. But to be honest, they don't need our voices. They need to hear Christ's voice, which in Revelation, that's what you see. Yeah, and you know, that, that just segues into a, a real important thing because most Christians, I, I hear many of them saying they struggle to know the voice of Jesus. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice and they follow me. And yet the reality is that there are many, many Christians, many people in church who struggle to know, is this God or isn't it? One thing about what happened in the churches in Revelation with the hard times they were living in, it, that desperation makes it easier to clarify what's God and what isn't, especially if you've laid the foundation of orthodoxy. And I look at the relevancy of the book of Revelation for today with the culture wars that we are involved in, and I don't want to take us a, a wrong direction, but I believe there's a, a powerful relevancy here with the culture wars that we're in. And here in the United States in particular, we're seeing a sentiment that is growing anti anything Christian, mm-hmm. uh, especially committed Christian. Yeah. So any Christian who would stand for what they believe, yeah, biblical. Mm-hmm. So this becomes very relevant, but we need to hear the voice of Christ and recognize that his voice for what it is. Yeah, which is something we've talked about the last two weeks on Sundays is uh, usually when people say, I don't know how to hear God's voice, they're not talking about uh, the clear commands of scripture, what what God has revealed, the truth revealed uh, for all times to the saints, like this is the faith. Mm-hmm. What they're talking about is, I want Jesus to whisper in my ear, should I buy this car, take this job? Do I need a Ford or a Chevy? Yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. that is super subjective. And mm-hmm. and usually they're not, I, I mean, we shouldn't like just assume bad motives, uh, but they're not just saying, I want to do this that I might most glorify God in my life through my decisions, my purchases, uh, where I go to college, who I choose to marry. Uh, what they're saying is, I don't want this to work out bad. I want Jesus to sort of give me, let's skip to the end of the chapter of my life. Tell me how this is going to work out. Uh, and I think, man, when you back that up, that, so we, we talked about where uh, the prophet's in the cave and, you know, all these climactic things come by, you know, the earthquake and uh, mm-hmm. the storm. And then after it was the still small voice, mm-hmm. that is not what we find in the book of Revelation. Right. At all. Every right. time Jesus speaks, it sounds like a trumpet going off in John's ear. Every time Jesus right. speaks, it sounds like the sound of many waters or a great multitude. And I remember, uh, in fact, it would have been us three together. We went to a Notre Dame game, our very first Notre Dame game. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. We sat uh, behind, like, the tunnel where they all run out. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I... I it seems like our seats weren't together. Is that was Dad like up ahead of us, or it seems like we were close? But well, he always walks in front of us and makes us be yeah. in the place of honor, the dust of the rabbi. Oh my God! 
Well, I'll tell you, I was so excited about being at that game. This guy, that's not a real thing. The dust of the rabbi thing, I know it's cool. It is not real. I was so excited about being at my first Notre Dame football game, and we were up behind the band, so that was really. And the band comes out, and. And here come the Irish, and I had tears running down my cheeks. I'll admit it. It was just—it was a joy. That's what I remember. Like Dad's in front of us, and he turns around. And he's like, "Can you believe this? Like this is happening." I just think it's neat that you're remembering something. I'm remembering more and more. I know. I know. It's weird. Now to be really, really pulling us back here. When we get into chapters four and five, that scene in heaven with the trumpet sounding, I mean, you imagine, and, and I think, I've thought about this a lot, my great joy and delight of going to my first Notre Dame game, uh, or the other year when our whole family, we were able to get tickets to take our whole family, what a delight. But now, imagine, we sat together in that one, it was cold. Uh, but the joy in heaven, when that unfolds, I, I believe we're just going to be like John the Beloved. We're just going to fall down. The, the glory of that revelation, and I don't know if we'll pinch ourselves, but we will know. I'll pinch you. You'll pinch me? <laughs> we're here for you. Thank you. All right. See, I'm well, trying to be spiritual. Motives because there's no sin. That's no sin. That's a Jesus pinch right there. <laughs> Jesus pinch, pinch of love. The thing I remember from that day is they had uh, like all the cheerleaders on the four corners of the stadium, and one has a sign that says "we," and one has a sign that says "r," and one has a sign that says "n," and one has a sign that says "nd," and it goes around the stadium. There's eighty thousand people in the stadium. And with the voice of a great multitude, like you've never heard anything like yeah. this voice, we are and the which hey who cares about Notre Dame like in, in the great eternal spectrum of things like I like the football team but well yeah but it is God country and Notre Dame God, country Notre Dame that makes sense but I, I remember sitting there thinking are we talking about the Pope then later in the book of Revelation yeah, yeah we're gonna we're gonna get to okay. that the whore of Babylon as it were we uh, I remember sitting there thinking the voice of a great multitude. Like, yeah. this is what John heard when Jesus spoke to him, only even greater than that, you know. That was maybe 20,000 people, because if there's 80 divided into four, uh, man, what does it sound when myriads upon myriads of saints and angels declare the greatness of our God? Like, dang, that's going to be awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... I think, I think too, too in, in, in Revelation, Revelation we, we, we make, make that, that same, we bring, bring the same framework in of like, am, am I hearing God's voice? Am I, is, is, what am, am I hearing uh, to Revelation where um, it, all, it produces a fear in us, that same fear of like, we're afraid that we're going to do the wrong thing and God's blessing's not going to be there. We're afraid we're going to do the wrong thing and things aren't going to be right for us or we're not going to hear rightly from God. And uh, people have that fear when they read the book of Revelation. Are things going to go all right? Or is it going to be terrible and scary? Uh, and the truth is, a couple of things. One is, in Revelation, John always hears one thing and then turns around and sees something else. Right? He hears a lion and sees a lamb. Or, you know. Um, and so, um, but the other thing is, 
there's never any like colossal battle. You know, we talk about the the battle of Armageddon. Every time in the Book of Revelation, Jesus speaks and it's over. Yeah, yeah, that's it. There's no fights. There's no real conflict. It's it's a sovereign God who does whatever He wants to do. And people's inability to to interpret what they're hearing the right way, people's inability to obey, uh, none of those things stand in the way of his sovereign purposes. And so it's really just a, a very self-centered thing. And what Revelation is trying to do is rip that self-centeredness away from us. Yeah, lift us out of that. Yeah. And, and what, as you were talking, just came back to me in, in all of this as well, is... You know, I've always felt like Revelation is the culmination, it is the restoration of what was lost in Genesis, uh, and the addition, you, know, you think, there's no battle. And I immediately thought, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, and God said, boom, it's a done deal. Then we get to Revelation 22. You remember Adam and Eve were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or of the tree of life. And yet here we get into Revelation 22 and we find the tree of life alongside the river of life that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb and the leaves of that tree of life are for the healing of the nations. So now we have in Revelation 22 the fulfillment, the completeness, the uh, the blessing of the tree of life that was not available to Adam and Eve. I mean, what a glorious thing. And, yeah. You know, what you said, Jay, was so good. There is no battle. I remember going to Israel, and I remember going to uh, uh, Megiddo, which is in uh, the Valley of Armageddon, and you're walking up there, and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, this is where it's all going to happen. And I remember, boom, boom, and we all looked around and felt better when we saw two Israeli uh, fighter jets break the sound barrier over our head. But, man, I'll tell you, what a moment. But to think of this, this great battle, and like you said, Jay, Jesus speaks one word, and it's over. And yet, how many times as Christians do we find ourselves wondering about the valley of Armageddon and this great battle and the horrors of all of this, and we forget one word, Christ is king, Christ is victor. All he has to do is speak one word, just like he did in Genesis 1. Yeah. You did good. So here's the scary thing about that. When you read uh, later in the book of Revelation, when we get there, uh, is that he's going to... Uh, war against them, fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Mm -hmm. Like, how scary is that? That it's Jesus, it's his, his word that is destroying the nations. And that valley of Armageddon becomes where he throws the dead losers. That's kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, but here's, here's the warning that we saw in chapters 2 and 3 this week, where Jesus says to one of his churches, not, not necessarily... Uh, rebels who've rejected Christ's lordship to his own people. He's like, you've allowed things to come into your church. If you don't fix this, I'm going to come fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I think that that's kind of a good segue into some of the danger that exists for us as a church, because it can be kind of exciting to listen to that. Man, God's going to restore all things. And, and yeah, I'm gloriously looking forward to the, the full restoration of 
Uh, God never lost it, right? right? There's, there's the heresy that I think a lot of us heard when we were younger. We lost it. Like yeah, we've been, uh, all creation's been subjected to frustration. God's never been frustrated a single second of all eternity. Like he's perfectly sovereign, but the church can be frustrating. I've, I've toyed with the idea of uh, printing up t-shirts that say people suck. <laughs> it's just sometimes just so pastoral. So pastoral. Yeah. Yes, the church yes. would be fine if it wasn't for the people. Yeah, right? yeah, there just we go. fantastic. So America would be great if it wasn't for all the Americans. Anyway, so you know, uh, what? love it or leave it. Love it. Okay? <laughs> not, not today. If you don't love it, I'll help you pack. <laughs> all right. I think I actually have that T-shirt. My wife got it for me. <laughs> okay, anyways. Uh, Moving right along. There's the danger if we allow things like false teaching to come into the church that Jesus will come and stand against us, that he will oppose us, even the church. Uh, so what do you guys see in, in that area of false teaching, false teachers, uh, well, first of all, I, I am grateful that God can take care of the false teachers and that I don't have to do that. Uh, I don't have to be the false teacher cop. But we do have to recognize what is scriptural and what isn't. And we've got to teach people, how do you know this? Uh, and I will tell you that when I was young in ministry, uh, I was so afraid of false teaching. Uh, I didn't know who to trust. I, I was afraid of Bible colleges. Who do I trust? And frankly, the best thing that ever happened to me is I, I just had my Bible, I had a Strong's Concordance, and I had a good Bible dictionary and a set of maps. So, for better or worse, I immersed myself in the Scripture because I was so afraid. And how do you know if it's wrong teaching? Because people can be so persuasive. And just on a personal note, uh, and, and so convinced, convinced that they're right. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the one who is the loudest for the longest wins the argument. Right. Whether the, whether the outcome of that argument is correct or not. So for me, the safeguard came when I, when I read what Paul says. This is to the Corinthians. This third time I'm coming to you out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Well, that's a throwback to Deuteronomy where God establishes the, the legal system and says you can't convict, you can't stone anybody to death unless it's on the mouth of two or three witnesses. Right. Matthew then, Jesus applies that to church discipline out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. Well, then Paul applies it to doctrinal truth and says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. So that, if I may just give a personal quick story here, that became a salvation to me. We were in a in a small group in Modesto, California during the days that your mother and I were traveling on the road. And uh, we get into this weird home group where they're looking into candles and doing weird oh things. And it was in California? It was, yeah. Mm -hmm. Lesson learned. Yes. Everybody stayed in California. Uh, they were part of a little, little group called Bethel. <laughs> no, that was long before Bethel was ever imagined. But we're there and I'm thinking, okay, what do I do? Well, I let them finish. I mean, because what happened, they started praying for people, and this guy goes, and we reached down into your soul 
at which point we'd been laying hands on this guy, praying for this woman who was somewhere else, which was fine, until he began to say, I, we reached down into your soul. He's addressing this woman who is somewhere. And uh, that, at that point, I was watching and praying and watching your mother, and her eyes were big, and I thought, oh, help me, Holy Ghost, what do we do here? I let him finish, and I said, now, I'm young in the ministry, uh, and teach me, show me what this is to be. And how, it, how is this right, what we're doing? He says, well, that's a great question. Well, you know, Jesus said, I have many more things to teach you, but when the Spirit comes, he'll teach you these things. I said, oh, okay. Uh, scripture says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. Can you share with me a couple of other things? At which point he went ballistic, ultimately in the thing, he, and I'm, I'm just holding up my Bible saying, show me, just show me, I want to learn, show me. He's, so, so I don't believe God ever intended that book to be written. Yeah. I mean, what, what is salvation? salvation? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, forget, forget the little uh, rabbit trail there, but it is so important that we understand doctrinal truth, and we understand it, and we understand that context is king in all of these scriptures. Yeah. Because people can make great arguments, but we must stand for biblical truth Good. and not compromise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if, and if anyone, anyone ever tries that, that line with you, you, you just squeeze, squeeze between, between your fingers, fingers acts through revelation, and go, and, and here it is, the many things the Spirit had to teach us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wacky. wacky. Yeah, yeah, which is funny, because I was just, uh, had a conversation with somebody this week, and we're talking about where Paul says, all right, uh, not I, but the Lord says this. Mm -hmm. And he's quoting Jesus, but it's not something that we have recorded in the gospel that Jesus has said. And then he says, all right, so I'm telling you this, having to do with husbands and wives and male and female roles. Uh, now, not the Lord. He's not saying God didn't say this. This doesn't belong in the Bible. He's saying, all right, this isn't a quote from Jesus. This is a quote from Paul. You should still listen to it. Mm -hmm. uh, this still has authority. And yeah, we have to be, that, that actually is the seed of what we see in the Bethel movement. Uh, that's, that's actually, actually why I, Bethel makes some great songs. Like, like there's, there's a handful of songs that are super good. I, I heard John Piper do a, a podcast on No Longer a Slave, I think, or, or one, of, I mean, one of those. Uh, but he talked about, like, if you, if you read some of those lyrics from, like, a reform position, you're like, man, uh, before the foundation of the earth, you chose me in this. Like, there, there's a lot of... You could almost hear Calvinist overtones in there, except uh, there's all this other stuff that's sort of mixed in with the equation, which is why we kind of said, we're not playing their songs. Uh, I just saw a thing, uh, I apologize, podcast people, but I, I, I think it's a danger, like, along with that, because a lot of people are like, huh, you know, just do your church, why are you worried about these other things? I just saw a new book that's come out from them that's basically a guided meditation on how to, like somebody sits down in a room with you and we lower the lights and then we talk really quietly. And as we do this, you're going to enter the fifth heaven. And it's, it's exactly what that group was getting into. And when Christians find themselves face to face with that, you better have a biblical answer for why we're going to stand on the revealed word of God and not mysticism. Because I actually think that's the same type of 
assimilation with the culture, with uh, pagan beliefs creeping into the church, and it sounds so good, but man, is that dangerous. It is, and you, you look at what's going on in our culture and our society, uh, Americans are spending millions upon millions of dollars uh, looking for the supernatural, whether it's crystals, yeah. crystals uh, astrology, and, and all of that. And what happens in the church is we see this going on, and, and if we're not aware of the presence of Christ and the power of his word, we begin to say, okay, we're all of these things just stories. So we want to get in touch with the mystical. And the power of God is, is real, but we've got to have the... The scriptural authority, that, that is our defense. Yeah. You know, these parameters that keep us on track, it's like a train. If you get off the rails, you're in trouble. You're going nowhere, and you're going to have a, a major wreck. So, you know, if we don't have sound doctrine that keeps us moving, yeah. We're never going to make it. And, and these, these things, things make a shipwreck of people's faith. faith. That's yes. why we have to. So uh, I appreciate you know what you said earlier about not needing to be the false teacher police. Meaning, our, the message we've been given to proclaim is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, not the not the the exposing of false teaching. But part of our proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're commanded to that. Exactly. Um, as we look at scriptural examples, uh, I mean, Jesus does it here, right, to the Ephesians. You you uh, hate the work of the Nicolaitans, you know, who are who are, are preaching this message of assimilation to the culture. Um, he names a group of people. Paul names groups of people, right? He says the Judaizers can go to hell for what they're teaching, and they're going to. Um, Paul names individuals. Literally, that's what he says. That, right. that idea of anathema. Right, yeah, I wasn't being crass. That's, that's literally what he says. They can go to hell, and they're going to go. And um, Paul names individuals in, 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 who are false teachers in, 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 in opposing the true gospel. And, and so, so what, what happens, happens in our, our culture, culture is if you, you do that, you get lumped into this group of um, heresy hunters. Heresy hunter, or you think you're you're the um, you know you're the authority on orthodoxy, and you're the one that holds the keys, um, almost like you're you're the Roman Catholic magisterium or something. You know, the truth is we're called to do that, and if we love people. We have, we have to do it. it. Yeah. So that, I, I was thinking in particular the church in Pergamum, and it might not be a bad idea if we read just a tiny bit of scripture. Really? <laughs> uh, but that the thing that you said where uh, it affects people's lives, uh, he says, Revelation 2, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny the faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Like, that's a pretty scary place to live. Yes, it is. Where Satan dwells. Uh, but I have a few things against you. That, again, that shocked me in thinking about the persecution, like, going on right now in Afghanistan. If somebody from our church was, like, murdered for the faith and we held fast to Christ, we'd be like, good enough. And then he goes, I got a couple things against you. Like, man, that's kind of... 
<laughs> Evidently, his standard isn't ours. Uh, you also hold, or have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block in the sons of Israel. They might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. Uh, and verse 15 here, I think, is the thing. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This isn't... Everybody, it's not everything. And we tend to talk in really universal terms about everybody in this church, like everybody in that church, everybody in this church. And it, the reality is there are individuals in all the churches who are being led astray by false teaching. And therefore, it's important to make mention of them. Oh. So that maybe let's just talk about this Nicolaitans thing just a little bit, fill in the gaps on that. Oh. Interesting, Interesting that, that, that most scholars that I've read agree that he was one of the original deacons that was chosen in what, Acts 6, Acts 6, which is interesting to me, that whole process of what takes place there, because if I understand things right, they all have Greek names of these deacons, but he was one of those original deacons. Yeah, so uh, a couple church fathers have said that, so Irenaeus... Uh, says that, who we talked about last week. Um, now that, I mean, just because the church fathers say it doesn't mean it's right. right? They could be wrong. They were a little closer to it than we were. But they, yeah, exactly. So uh, if I tell you who did what during the Civil War, and that was 150 years ago, uh, or if I read something that was written 30 years after the Civil War, you should probably listen to what was written closer than what I have to say. Uh, Irenaeus says that Alexander of Clement uh, said the same thing and describes the teaching of the Gnostics as abandoning themselves, this is a great line, to pleasure like goats as if insulting the body, leading a life of self-indulgence. Like goats. <laughs> I've never really thought of a goat like, yeah. A goat has a mind of its own. <laughs> Is, isn't it interesting, uh, you tying that together with uh, the teachings of Balaam, which Balaam basically tells the king, look, the only way you're going to get Israel defeated is to get their young men to marry your daughters, violating scripture. Yeah. Uh, Biblical compromise. Biblical moral compromise, compromise. Moral compromise. Moral compromise. And... Boy, isn't, isn't that, that the culture, culture that we're living in today? Yeah. You know, we, we want to be careful not to draw real comparisons, say, okay, this is the church today, and get into all of that eschatology that some people have just gotten. But isn't that the thing today? Like, there but is exactly where compromise coming in. So, uh, you want a great example? Uh, look at mainline denominations, and if you are not fully on board, not just tolerate, but fully on board supporting. The LGBTQ LMNOP uh, agenda. Wow, like you are you are evil and ostracized, and you're a hater, and you can come back to listen. Here's the clear teaching of Scripture, and they'll basically look at you and your Bible and say you're doing it wrong. If that isn't that teaching of Balaam of compromise with the world coming into the church, where the church is indistinguishable from the world. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And, and, and just, just this summer and this fall coming, uh, major denomination about ready to split over these issues right now. And praise God. Yeah, yeah praise, praise God. God. There are reasons 
to leave a denomination. Yep. Uh, Jesus says, if you don't change, I'm going to come remove your lampstand. Yeah. Which means we should joyfully divide from those mm -hmm. who have divided themselves from Christ and Scripture and pray for either return to faithfulness or that God would remove them as a church. Right. Well, that, and that's what they do. I mean, so the Methodists, you know, you've got this, this wing that has departed entirely from biblical truth. Um, and uh, in America, that happens to be the majority wing. But what they're doing is sort of, they're saying these unbiblical things, teaching these unbiblical things, um, and then they sort of clutch their pearls at anyone who wants to hold to biblical orthodoxy. And like, we don't want to separate from you, don't do this. We... No, but they're the ones who've departed. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to. You have, you have to, to not, not be afraid, afraid to just, to just say, say that. that. I think, I think, I think we, we, part, part of how, how we, we get, get to the place where we have bought into the teaching of Balaam or the Nicolaitans is step number one, Christian, is you're afraid to say that. Because the culture and other Christians are going to tell you that that's mean of you. And you're judgmental. Yeah, and the truth is that's how How did we get to the place we've gotten on LGBTQ plus Issues, issues in the in church, church were just, just crazy. crazy. We were we out, out in the, the southeast, southeast this, this, this whole last week, week. and about every church you go past has a rainbow flag. flag. But now they're, they're not, not, they, they used, used to be just rainbow flags, flags. now they got, got the, the, the transgender, transgender little arrows on them and all this. And you think, how did that happen? Well, it starts by saying, like, the Bible whispers about these issues, so let's not talk about them, which is a lie from hell anyway. The Bible is super clear on the issues. Um, but, but it starts, starts by feeling like, like we need to tiptoe tip instead of speaking the truth in love. Yeah, a loving thing to do to a person who's about to jump off a cliff is to tell them what's, what's going to happen to them. them. Yeah. Yeah. Where the child is playing in the street, right. Right. where the semis are whizzing past. Right. Well, I would never want to crush their spirit. I, I don't want to hurt or offend them and tell them, listen, what you're doing is going to get you killed. Right. I, I'm just going to... I'm going to love them. I know you, I know feel, you feel you were born, born for this, this to, to run, run free anywhere, but that will lead to your destruction. You, you. You, you weren't actually, actually made, made for that. that you know? Know? Yeah. And, uh, so, but that's, that's step, step one, one, and that's, that's the step, step that, that even conservative, conservative churches, churches yeah, have, have already taken, taken and they're taking more steps now to follow it. You'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian college that hasn't taken that minimum of that step. If, if not, not more. more. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and there's a handful of them who have said things like, uh, we're going to step out from under the umbrella of uh, federal government, like student aid, because the government and all of its uh, unbiblical agenda will have no voice in our teaching. Uh, right. Like Al Mohler pulled Southern and Boyce completely out of that. And... Yeah. yeah, it costs yeah. a little more to go there, and they stand as beacons of truth. Right. Yes, which is kind of epic. Which, which is, good. is good. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, it, it, talking, talking about, about false teachers, teachers um, we we do see times in the New Testament. Uh, we see it in uh, Paul's ministry in First Timothy, uh, chapter one, nineteen and twenty says, holding faith with a good conscience. But by rejecting this, and this is what you said earlier, Jay, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. 
So mm-hmm. Hymenaeus and Alexander are Sounds teaching. Like a Donald Trump tweet. tweet. It does. It does. <laughs> Paul. Hand him over to Satan. <laughs> we were at, by the way. way. This feels Paul had the big just... over like that. <laughs> He, he supposedly, supposedly had, had a unibrow. I know, the, the whole short of all George, George Costanza ish. Right, I've heard that. Uh, but, <laughs> but we were, we were at, at a Bible, Bible memory, memory banquet. banquet. Bible, Bible memory. <laughs> okay. The speaker gets up and begins his talk by telling us how he does not like Paul. What? And they wouldn't get along at all if he had known him. And then the rest of his talk has nothing to do with the Bible, and it's all about subjective words from the Lord which received it. And we don't give any money to Bible anymore. Hey, and there's a chance Paul, just like Martin Luther, was probably a fairly bullheaded, bombastic uh, guy that maybe we would have been awkward and uncomfortable having him over at our house. But God has engineered certain people to stand as beacons of light for the gospel in the midst of a dark generation that's literally trying to kill you because that's what it takes if the gospel is going to make it through things like the dark ages. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we've, we've got, got to recognize how in the church, church we've been influenced, influenced um, probably unknowingly, subconsciously been influenced by the uh, I'm okay, you're okay type of thing. And I remember back in the uh, 80s, 70s, 80s, where where this whole thing came out, I'm okay, you're okay, okay, and basically you take out of my theology the thing that offends you, and I'll take out of yours the thing that offends me, and we'll all love each other. Well, then we end up with no absolute authority of Scripture anymore because it all becomes relative. Let's just keep everybody happy, and uh, let's, let's not talk about the things that divide us. Let's celebrate the things that Unite us, and and there is there is some validity in that that we need to focus more on that. I know some of the countries that I've been privileged to go to, uh, the issues are not denominational. They are are you are you a Christian or are you a communist? Well, we talked about that on Sunday. If you go to Afghanistan right now. Uh, they don't care what style of music you use. That's right. They don't care what translation of the Bible you use, uh, whether or not you're a continuationist or a cessationist. Like, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you're a brother and we'll die together. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Right. That's much of the New Testament. That's the context. Like, we forget that. We think the New Testament's American. Uh, our lackadaisical, you know, lazy self-centeredness. This was, if you choose to be a follower of Christ, it will be enmity with the world. Your family will probably turn on you and betray you. And uh, it just struck me, like, all the Afghanistan stuff blowing up this week, uh, looking at some of this and then seeing uh, in 2 Timothy. So in 1 Timothy, Paul names this guy. In 2 Timothy uh, 2, 16 through 18, he actually names Hymenaeus again. Mm-hmm. Like, seriously, this guy is enough of a problem. I'm going to keep mentioning. It wasn't like, listen, I said it once. He's not my responsibility. He actually says, no, this is my responsibility. Uh, you have to guard yourself. Uh, John, the author of this book in Second uh, John verse 10, says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, this gospel, this Christ, 
don't receive them into your house. Don't give them any greeting. Mm-hmm. Um, 1 John 4 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have already gone out into the world. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's important that we not lump everybody into giant universal categories. Um, I was reminded, as we were talking about it in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, with all of my disagreements with Bill Johnson, who's the lead pastor of the Bethel churches. Uh, who I would encourage people never to listen to his teaching. Uh, we don't do their songs, and yet I'm convinced he really loves Jesus. Like, I think he is not being helpful, uh, but I think he's genuinely wrong. Mm-hmm. But anyways. he's passionate <clears throat> at the very least. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, and but Paul... And without the grace of God, we could end it up right there. Yeah, like, absolutely. we swam in sure. some of them waters, yeah. except all the stuff Dad said earlier about uh, scriptural authority, where is it in Scripture, that was a safeguard was the, to us. That was the yeah. safeguard. Even though our church kind of looked like that, we could have gone that way except for that, which you had built into the church and built into us. Mm-hmm. And, and we really that loved That was one Jesus. of the things I got right. <laughs> I, I mean, you think back on it. You're we really fan. love Jesus. I'm a Giants fan. Doesn't get more right than there that. There we go. No, come on, fellas. <laughs> Although, you know what? We'll go together and watch the Giants play the Cubs farm team here. In a yeah, I was going to say, it, do the Cubs <laughs> even exist anymore? Sort of. Is that a thing? Not as a professional organization. Just watch a South Bend Cubs. It's basically <laughs> what they have now. You, you know, and this may be moving ahead, but you know, the next thing you had talked about was trusting in our orthodoxy. And it is so easy for us to to just trust in that, and you know we don't buy into this, and it, be, it becomes holier than thou. Mm-hmm. We are in the world, but not of the world, and it, it's it's a it's a danger that yeah. we rest in being right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, well, I, and I think it, when I think about that, it, sometimes it helps not to think about our context. Think about mm-hmm. you know some of the guys that we really look up to as you know the great reformers of the church, uh, and I think Martin Luther was meeting with Ulrich Zwingli. I think it was Zwingli, uh, and they, they were trying to take uh, these two wings of this new Reformation churches and sort of blend them together uh, until they got talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper, at which. Uh, Martin Luther declared that he didn't think Zwingli was a Christian, and uh, they almost got into a fist fight. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> okay, so that's, I, I think we have to acknowledge that's our tendency is mm-hmm. to trust in, well, here's what I think is right. And I, I want us as a church and as individuals to go, this is what I believe is right, and this is what I believe is wrong. But we would look back on that and go, Luther, Luther, Luther. A bit much. A bit, yeah. You, you well, what are the, the what, so there are key issues and, and clear truths, you know, we hold to the perspicuity of Scripture that it's clear yeah. in its essential truths. Not everything is equally clear. Our, our understanding of the book of Revelation is not as clear as the gospel is. Yeah, that's so right. So we're not going to make... Um, uh, a particular um, eschatological view, a requirement for membership, right? Um, you have to be premillennial, or you have to be postmillennial, or any of that. Can I be panmillennial? It's all going to pan out. What if you're postmillennial? You postmillennial. You got to get face tattoos. Face tattoos. Oh. <laughs> Here's the thing that hurts. 
Because I know almost nothing about this gentleman. No, me neither. Me neither. He's incredibly talented, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, but, I'm over here muddling through life. But let's face it. Uh, made some poor choices. Face if you're running around getting face tattoos. some bad choices. And then you see your face tattoo and you go, you know what I need? More face tattoos. You're not making the best choices. We watched a video of him singing. I hope that you're you're being being encouraged now. You're being strengthened. We watched a video of him singing. Don't get a face tattoo. That's what we're saying. (laughs) And it was kind of incredible. Just don't get a tattoo. And he's smoking while singing. And my daughter was watching it with us, and she's like, "Doesn't he make his living like with his voice? What's he doing?" I'm like, "Yeah, it doesn't." doesn't matter (laughs) uh, the the thing i was going to say is uh that that pertains to the bible the bible (laughs) jesus thanks for coming back uh is you know paul actually calls out peter too yeah he did uh, because there are sufficiently clear truths in scripture um that we we must call people out on, and that does not make us guilty of trusting in our own orthodoxy. It doesn't make us guilty yeah. of of being spiritual headhunters. It doesn't make us accusers of the brethren. You know, it's one thing to call out somebody and say you're going to hell, heretic. Uh, it's another thing to call out Peter. Yeah. Uh, but Peter needed to be called out because of his partiality. Well, so that that was great and, because there's three layers mm-hmm. that you see in the New Testament. And I hadn't really thought about this until you said it. Uh, you see uh, Paul in particular, uh, the bold. Wouldn't it be great if he had his own reality show? Because I think that would have been it awesome. Be uh, but you see him calling out the Judaizer false teachers who are uh, denying the gospel and saying to them, anathema. Mm-hmm. Like, the result of your life and teaching is that you should go to hell mm-hmm. and I hope that hurries up and happens. Like crazy. Like some of the stuff he says about the circumcision group. Right. Like, yeah. I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Like yeah. what an awesome comment for a Every Sunday teenager's one. favorite. Yeah. Like, so you have this like one level where uh, you are outside of the faith ending up in hell. You have uh, Hymenius and Alexander who he says, I've handed over to Satan that they can learn not to blaspheme. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the language of church discipline. That, right. That's not the language of, I, I hope that this ends poorly for you. That's like, I hope, uh, so you see that in Matthew 18, of uh, talk to them. If they don't listen, take one or two others. If they don't listen, uh, tell it to the church. Treat them as an unbeliever. Right. Uh, hand them over to Satan that they might. In the hopes of restoration. Same well, thing with the immoral yes, man that, in uh, the Corinthian church. Yes, right? yeah. And then when there was obviously repentance, Paul is saying, welcome him back. Right. So, so he's not necessarily saying you're a non-Christian on your way to hell uh, to Hymenius and Alexander, even though Hymenius is clearly a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just keeps mentioning him and going, this guy may be a brother, but you can't listen to him. Like you, you right. can't have anything to do with him. And then you have this third category where Paul corrects Peter, rebukes mm-hmm. Peter, and there's no mention of discipline. There, there's no mention of a break in fellowship. This is two brothers close to each other who are disagreeing, and he's bringing correction, but there's, there's no break in fellowship. Mm-hmm. Right? That's huge. You, you have the, the no break in fellowship. You have serious issues that cause a break in fellowship, and then you have the serious issues that 
basketball. There was never right. any fellowship. And and with Peter, it was public when it happened. Mm-hmm. It happened in public. Right. Yeah. And Paul made it the other more public by writing about it. Um, because even in those cases, there are issues that are important enough. And that particular issue is is I think one of the central issues in the church today yeah. in America, the issue of partiality. And it has to, and, and I'm seeing all kinds of stuff. People, I just saw something this morning of someone, you know, basically saying, if you stand against this woke nonsense that's come into the church, that you're an accuser of the brethren. And it's, you know, that they would be calling Paul an accuser of the brethren for what he did to, you know, mm-hmm. to right. Peter. Uh, and so that's, we, we have to recognize that that's not a hateful thing. It's not an angry thing. It's a gospel thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, that is what speaking the truth in love looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, right. sometimes speaking the truth in love means crying with someone yeah. and, you know, yeah. <laughs> telling them that, that Christ will have them if they'll come. Right. But our, our whole generation, this culture is saying, if you disagree with someone, they're taking all three of those categories and lumping into one. Yeah. You hate them and you want them to go to hell. Right. Man, how much the opposite. Yeah. As exactly. our hearts break for, I mean, so much of, of at least our interaction as pastors that happens behind the scenes. Uh, we may have one tiny interaction where we're talking face to face. Much of it is discussing and praying and weeping behind the scenes like, man, God save this person. Mm-hmm. God, deliver them from this. Mm -hmm. Do a work of grace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the other dangers, uh, not just trusting that we're right in our orthodoxy, uh, but trusting in our good works, that I'm doing things in such a right way that I know I'm safe. And if you ask most people, why are you a Christian? Like, they're going to respond with, well, I go to church. Like, that's number one. Uh, Every Sunday, or at least two Sundays a month. Or I was there at Christmas and Easter. (laughs) I always feel bad because at Christmas and Easter, I always want to point that out. Like, hey, welcome back. Good to see you. Fill out a visitor card because... We'll see you in six months. You did that once years ago. Uh, Yes. And somebody got super mad and offended. Like you would if you show up to church. Somebody who really literally just did that. I don't remember who it was. It is is absolutely uh, being a sacramentalist where... Uh, our church is not a sacramental church. We're going mm-hmm. to church is a sacrament. In other words, you get sort of an infusion of grace. I'm more spiritual. I'm more holy. You get more acceptable to God. And yet that's what you see with Christmas and Easter. Like, yeah, I should go to better church. I need this. Mm-hmm. I, I need to be a better person. I'm going to go there. Mm-hmm. A better person is when we surrender our lives to the Lordship of Christ in every thought, every decision, every word, every conversation. <laughs> you know, I... One of the things that I thought of going into this uh, and trusting in our works is for for years growing up, and even early on when I started to preach, and I started when I was 18, so I've been preaching for a few years, and you talk about Laodicea, and you're talking about, you always hear about lazy, lukewarm people. But when you look at the text... And I understand that you need to be careful with the English text, and I understand with the English uh, punctuation. But if I understand things correctly, oh, Greek scholar here. Definitely not. Oh, okay. 
We had decided but, before the podcast to call Jason the professor. Yes. Oh. Yes. And then he argued out of it. Yeah. So we're not calling you the no, professor. No, we're not calling him the professor, even At though he has point. been an adjunct if professor. If I had a PhD, I would insist that you call me Dr. Gingrich. <laughs> <laughs> if you had a PhD and I had a rash in an uncomfortable place... I would show it to you. And I would be qualified to diagnose. I would ask you to diagnose it. Because I stayed at a Holiday Inn. No. <laughs> okay. So the the thing that, that really spoke to me, and, and I know we are not going to delve specifically into a lot of church issues, but two things that have really challenged me about the church in Laodicea in chapter 3 and verse 15, uh, Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, and I, I was always got the impression growing up in church that the Laodiceans were lazy. They were awful. Awful, right. do-nothing people. But Jesus says, I know your deeds, but you, you're neither hot nor cold. You're trusting in your deeds. You're trusting in your work. Your relationship with me is not what it ought to be. Right. Okay. Which is actually the same message he gives to the church in Ephesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing that he says to the Laodicean churches church that he doesn't say to the others because you're neither hot nor cold because you're lukewarm and there was some real uh, cultural dynamics going on with the water that come in from aqueducts into Laodicea uh, that has some interesting dynamics to it but Jesus said I'm going to put you out of my mouth the other churches he says I'm going to remove your candlestick I thought about this Jay when you mentioned earlier that there is no battle. Jesus speaks the word. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a little gross maybe to think about, but what does it mean to be in the mouth of God? It's in the place where the logos and the rhema comes, and you're no longer in that place where God's voice is being expressed in you and through you. To me, that has become one of the scary things not that I want a position of greatness or grandeur, but to, to be as a godly man, as godly churches in that place, in the mouth of God, where his creative word of revelation, correction, all of that comes comes to be. I mean, the, the whole concept to me of what does it mean to be in the mouth of God? Because everything God has ever done, he has done by the word of his mouth. I don't have a good answer for that. I just, it's one of those things that I think about a lot. Now, it's kind of gross to think about being in somebody else's mouth. But, you know, in that metaphoric sense, to be in the mouth of God. God doesn't have a mouth, so it's not gross. Okay. Yeah. He's a spirit. He's a spirit. Okay. No mouth, no hands. But the whole the whole idea there. Yeah. That well, and it, so that gets at the the whole idea is uh, like it makes for great sermon fodder to to mm-hmm. fill up mm-hmm. with things like that. Uh, but really, like the the reoccurring thing that we see in the book of Revelation is uh, you have symbols which which are communicating a truth, and the truth is Christ is King. Yes. Christ is Lord. He, he's ruler over all things, and so we see in three different symbols, three different ways. The same message. When you were talking, I was thinking, you know, it's really sad. 
that as a kid, we just picked on the Laodicean churches. We like did. Everywhere that you'd hear messages on apostate churches, like you felt bad for the Ephesians because they'd left their first love. And well, actually, we talk about lukewarm Christians. Right. That's the imagery we use. But all, all three, where they get a real similar message, he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to wipe you out as a church. Same message. I'm going to war against you with the sword of my mouth. Mm -hmm. Same message. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Same message. Like those two are actually really similar. And the message isn't necessarily for us to figure out like what it is like for Christians to live under the tongue of Jesus or something like that. Uh, but uh, more of like... Gauging the spiritual temperature at all times. Ooh, the word of God oh, has power... Yeah. for life and destruction. Yes. And it will be life to his people and it will be the end of apostate Christians and mm -hmm. churches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one day, it's going to be the end of the whole world mm -hmm. as he battles against the whole world with the sword of his mouth. Right. Uh, and I, I think that, so that, that's a good, good reminder that we have to be a little careful with some of those images, uh, not to like try and deep dive into it and then have an artist draw a picture of it uh, Pull but we ourselves could sell back. Them. Christ is King. We could. We could give them away we for could. a donation. As so many pastors. Like in do. Heaven is for Real, where they have a picture of Jesus and they're like, this is what he really looks like. Ooh. That's a uh, violation of the second commandment, folks. <laughs> Making an image. And as much as you love it, you should get rid of that book. It's probably true. I speak not as a representative of Eden. <laughs> but stop buying heaven tourism books. Yeah. No, I'll agree with that. The, the, the Ephesians, he tells them, um, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. I've found them to be false. So far, big pats on the back. Yep. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. How much better can you get? Yeah. Then he tells them they've abandoned their first love. And he says in verse 5, Repent, therefore, from where, uh, from where you have fallen. Repent, or remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Well, what... All he's been telling them is how that their works are righteous and right. good, um, but it's this it's this idea of we know the truth, we do the right things, we don't do the wrong things, and that's where that's what our whole world revolves around. Uh, instead of the glory of Christ. Um, the worship of Christ, <laughs> yeah. uh, doing doing all of those exact same things out of a heart of thanksgiving and worship, um, and he tells them, "I'll remove your lampstand if you don't repent." Yeah, and that's. But I think, what does it look like to trust in our orthodoxy or to trust in our good works? It's to put all of our hope in that. Yeah, to, to have that be our motivating factor. We want to be the ones who are right. Well, see, and that proves that that what I believe is right because I'm doing the right thing, and therefore, you know, I'm trusting in yeah, that. Right. Because yeah. that is the validation where the validation is clearly the sovereign grace of God, and the only thing that I brought to my salvation was the sin that required it. Yeah. So, or even a deep love of Jesus, and you know, how can that guy be all wrong if he deeply loves Jesus? Mm -hmm. Well, you can be committed and love a God that you misunderstand and 
I mean, I, I don't think you can completely misunderstand him. Otherwise, your your love for God is actually false. But like, we right. can be wrong about some things mm-hmm. and still love Jesus. That that our passion for God doesn't mean that what we're saying is right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think because of this last one here, and I'd like us to talk about tolerating sin uh, less in the idea of uh, where do you see the church tolerating sin? I I think that's easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How do we respond to the church toleration of sin in a biblical, God-honoring way that doesn't turn us sort of the flip side of that trusting in good works thing to where I'm trusting in my lack of bad works? Like my, mm-hmm. it's my things that I don't do. That, that song we sing, no, no list of things I haven't done. Mm-hmm. Uh, no virtues I pursue uh, can ever earn my place before God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, how does the church rightly respond to this encroaching sin that wants to infect the church, infect our, our thoughts, our interaction with the culture, and not do it in a way that just turns towards a cold legalism uh, that at this point fails to weep for the lost? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on that? I remember growing up uh, hearing repeated again and again, yeah, love the sinner, but hate the sin. Now, we live in a culture right now that says, if you don't, if you accept me, then you're going to accept my lifestyle. And if you don't accept my lifestyle, you haven't accepted me. Um, And that becomes a a major challenge. With that, um, and this might be a, a digression, but I don't think so, I remember one of the major accusations that was brought against me was that I tolerated sin in the church because we had a lady attending our church at that time that was living with a man that she wasn't married to. They had two children together that she was bringing to church and Sunday school. And I was confronted pretty directly that I was tolerating sin in the church this woman held no position in the church. She didn't teach Sunday school. She had no responsibility. And I remember looking at the man and saying, is it possible to have a sinner in church on a Sunday morning and not have sin in the church? He wouldn't answer me. Well, because we want unsaved people exactly. under the preaching of the gospel. Yes, because it's the power of the word that brings people to salvation uh, and part of that process is conviction. So, you know, there there's a tension here, uh, and, and I think practically speaking, we don't allow people who are living in open sin, uh, and we don't know about behind-the-scenes sin because we can't see behind the scenes, but we don't allow people who are living in open sin to hold positions of responsibility within the life of the congregation. Well, and even deeper than that, we're going to challenge them. Are you a Christian? Yes. Your your life and lifestyle are actually testifying against you. Mm-hmm. We, we don't believe that salvation comes uh, by you either moving out from your husband or getting married or Mm -hmm. this guy you're living with or getting married to him and he becomes your husband, like that doesn't fix the situation. Repentance and trust in Christ, that's what brings salvation. 
And it, that lady, we eventually had a conversation with her and said, I don't think you were ever a Christian. Mm-hmm. And what generally happens in those situations is somebody gets mad and leaves. Yeah. Which is... My experience has been that they really appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you for caring enough to do this hard thing. Thank you for caring about my eternity. Yeah. yeah Thank to you say for something, me something that life. you benefit nothing personally from. In fact, it will only cause you personal pain. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. old pastor. My experience as a pastor has been nothing but but love and and receptiveness. Oh, that's encouraging. From people, yeah, that's encouraging. I don't as know if you're doing it wrong. As I, your I tongue must. is planted <laughs> firmly in your cheek, Jason. Do you know where liars go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm like, do I need to talk to the doctor about the fact that I can't sleep at night? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, this this is a real this is a real we're we're injecting some humor into this in part because we have to. to well, be because to those situations are so they're, painful. They're so painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you love people, you care yeah. about people. Uh, and caring enough to confront them is is a difficult situation, mm-hmm. especially in a culture that has gone from, when I was a kid, favorite most quoted Bible verse was either John 3.16 or the golden rule where today it is judge not lest you be judged. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing that is going on in our culture. So we want to love people. We want to make it easy for them to come. And, and that gave rise and I think out of some right motives that became misdirected seeker friendly churches which ultimately didn't work because that's not a category of people that exists. Yeah, that's the big reason. Yeah, yeah. No one seeks after God. Right. No and one does. We what have is to righteous. be confronted <laughs> with our sin, and and I have believed for years that the most gracious thing God ever does is confront me with my sin, because if I'm not confronted with my sin, there is no need for repentance. Yeah. yeah. So even. Uh, we're going to find in the New Testament, uh, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's mm-hmm. something that we can do that isn't judgmental, like stop going to movies. I mean, that, that was a thing in previous generations. Stop playing card games. Uh, and mm-hmm. then, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian because I don't drink wine, I don't go to movies, I don't play card games. Mm-hmm. Uh, and clearly my wife wears a jean skirt because that's the most biblical attire for a it woman. It actually is. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think a, a better thing is examine yourself. Well, yeah. and, and think about Paul. And maybe it's because, you know, I'm beyond the year, uh, age of 70, but I think about when Paul starts out early in ministry, he talks about being least of the apostles. Near the end of his life, he talks about being the chief of sinners. So he's no longer comparing himself to the other apostles. He's yeah. only comparing himself to Christ. So he sees himself as chief of sinner. And he says in one place that he, he wants to examine himself. And this is the Gingrich translation, by the way. But I want to guard my heart lest after I've done all of this, I myself am I'm lost. You know, I'm 74 years old. I think about this, that... I don't want to waste a lifetime of ministry and at the end have my heart turn cold where I lose my first love. And, you know, I appreciated what you said Sunday because it was, it was a conscious choice where 
they left their first love. It wasn't just a gentle drift, which does happen to us, but it was a choice of choosing this rather than passion for God. So I want to be careful. I want to finish strong. And this is what Paul is saying, I believe. I want to finish strong to be able to say, I've, I've fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, has laid up for me a crown of righteousness, not because I've done it or I've earned it, but because of God's sovereign grace, which not only redeemed me, but kept me in all of this process so that I'm strong. Yeah. And, and I... Well, and how often do we hear people who are claiming to repent of sin? And their their repentance, their confession is generally like the great story of how they were a victim of circumstances, and I'm still super ticked at you for what you did and them for what they did. Uh, but I'm I'm going to try and be a bigger person. Well, that's not repentance. Right. Like no. you, you look at the prodigal son who has abandoned the father, and his entire speech that he never gets out is. I'm not worthy to be your son. Yeah. Make, like, make me. Yeah. Right. And if I can be a servant, that's literally the best. I Like, I have seen my sin, and I've seen what that makes in relationship between you and I. And no no negotiation, no excuses. I'm the chief among sinners. And that, I, in my mind, that speaks of what true repentance looks like when sin creeps into the church. And the, I think the problem is when you confront Christians on sin in the church, what you generally get is not, Jason, what you talked about a little bit ago, the, oh, thank you, pastor, for telling me this. Mm -hmm. You get an angry tirade full of excuses and accusations of why you're wrong and they're right. Mm -hmm. And I think it testifies to where their heart is. Yeah, it does. And sometimes that comes around. None of us respond well in our flesh to being told we're not perfect. Um, But... You know, Lord willing, then the Spirit of God is going to bring conviction and open our eyes, and we're going to come around. But where that doesn't happen, we have good cause, you know, as Paul says, to examine the fruit of our lives and see if we're in the faith, unless we fail the test, you know. And and there is this, one of you used the word tension earlier. Jesus holds us in his hand, and no one can take us out, John said, John 6 mm-hmm. says, and the Father holds us in his hand. So we're not living in this perpetual fear of losing our salvation or anything like that. We understand that we will battle with sin throughout all of our earthly lives. We'll never reach a state of sinless perfection. Except for dad. But <laughs> we also have to and preach. maybe I need a drink. Yeah, those and two. Your mom. But other than that. And mom. And mom. Sorry, Mom. Yeah, because she's... I would have said mom first, but... Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, we're back to the favorite son now. Hey, it's all you know, clear. Hey, now, something that both of you said, and I, I appreciate the, uh, the tie-in with the parable of the prodigal son, and we know it's a parable, but I think one of the great barometers of my spiritual condition is to think about my prayer life. The prodigal prayed two prayers. Most of us pray that first one. Father, give me, give me. And, you know, I believe that God is eager for us to bring everything to him. Scripture says that before we call, he will answer, and while we yet speak, he will hear us. So we should be eager to take things. But personally, I've become challenged. Am I praying 
the first prayer of the prodigal, or am I primarily praying the second prayer? The first one was, Father, give me. The second one is, Father, make me. And I, and I think as you know, we look at what we trust in, one of the barometers that we can use in our own life is to listen to ourselves pray. And what is the predominant theme of my prayer? Is it, Father, give me, or is it, Father, make me? That's good. You should make a sermon out of that. I did. And you should preach it two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I did. Okay. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry, yeah. everyone. It's all coming Everybody back. over in Pleasant Lake, Indiana. <laughs> the, well, the, the thing is, in um, the point I was getting at before the both of you trained you all over it. So what's the point? You asked me here. <laughs> Split my tea up. <laughs> uh, you invited me here. There is this tension of being held by the sovereign hand of God, and if I persist in this sin, I will go to hell. Right. I cannot persist in unrepentance, and it it gets to that second prayer of the prodigal. We have to come to a pace of, of brokenheartedness over our sin. I cannot persist in unrepentant sin and think in any way that I am a possessor of eternal life. Yeah. It's, God has broken me out of my, my cemented in solidarity with Adam in death and judgment. I, I do have union with Christ, and if I do, then that's going to result in certain things in my life. I'm, I'm going to be, you know, as Luther said, the whole of Christian life being repentance. I'm going to, I'm going to be putting sin to death by the power of the Spirit, not flawlessly, um, but I'll be broken over my sin. I won't excuse it. Genuine repentance never looks like like I'm just not one to say I'm sorry. Like no, genuine repentance goes to the person uh, you've you've offended. Genuine repentance. Um, isn't deflecting, and we're all prone to that. Sure, not even our repentance is, is perfect, but um, we mustn't think that we can persist in unrepentant sin and not go to hell for that. Yeah, we we can't. That's not that's not true. That's not at odds with reform teaching either. It's a it's a false caricature of reform teaching that says you you pray a salvation prayer and then do heroin and murder your whole family and you're still going to heaven. Right. Salvation changes the heart, changes the mind, creates the new man, and that new man hates sin because the Spirit of God dwells in him and he's hidden in Christ. And so um, there, there is this sense in which when, when we come to sin, we have to deal with it violently and ruthlessly um, because sin literally will separate us from God. Yeah. Well, well go ahead. And tie that in with what David prays in Psalm 51 which has always amazed me because it gets at the heart of genuine brokenness over sin. He says, against you have I sinned and you only. And I'm thinking, okay, what about Bathsheba? You're what right. about the different that you had murdered? But David gets to the heart yeah. of this. And I believe that the reason, one of the reasons that the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart is because when his sin was exposed, he immediately takes ownership of it. He recognizes that the ultimate sin, while it affected other people, is rebellion against God. That's why he says, against you and you only have I sinned. 
and he genuinely repents and takes responsibility for that, and there is brokenness, and he does it quickly without excuse. Uh, and well, and then lives it out. Then and, lives and it I out. think that's that's a good mm-hmm. uh, summary of what Jay was talking about, and maybe yes. a good place yes. for us to wrap this up. Is there's a lot of people. We have to wrap it up. This is fun. I know. <laughs> I got work to do, gentlemen. I got stuff to do, man. <laughs> Places to go. Uh, Visitation. <laughs> there's a lot of people who look at where they are in relationship with God, and then they anchor it back to a prayer that they prayed on a Sunday morning at something that was described as an altar. Mm-hmm. And that's where the ultimate transaction of eternity happened. Mm-hmm. And the reality is... We don't have altars. altars. We're Protestants. That's right. Okay. okay. Go ahead. That's why I said called an altar. I know. I appreciated it. Thanks for chiming Thank in. Thank you for your precision. Let's see. Are we trusting in our orthodoxy so now? Are on we? that one. Oh, yeah. some, <laughs> some things are sufficiently clear. And Christ is the altar. We to, all right. Go ahead. Sorry. Thank you. See Hebrews. Anyway, uh, that when you have this idea of Uh, I'm safe, I'm good, because I prayed a specific prayer that may or may not have had any impact on my life, we are giving people a false trust, a Mm -hmm. a false sense of security and salvation that may not be theirs. And I think Paul would say, examine your life. I think Jesus would say, examine your life. And so you fast forward in the book of Revelation to chapter 12, and you see those who have lived and died for their faith, And basically what he says is the blood of Christ, the power of Christ to save is greater than our power to sin. And their lives bore the truth of that out, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. it was the blood of Christ applied to their hearts that caused salvation. And the genuineness of that was then proved in the way they lived their lives and didn't love them even unto death. Revelation 12, 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven, in heaven saying, now is the salvation, the power and the kingdom of our God, the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered. And we talked a lot about the fact that you see that word, to him who conquers, to him who overcomes, again and again to the churches. Mm-hmm. They did it by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. That wasn't a one-time confession. That was uh, a costly testimony that they bore witness to with their life and death. And they didn't love their lives even unto death. And I I think that's the call to Christians. See Christ as king, Mm -hmm. as head of the church, savior of the church, and that our lives are lived in obedience to our king and our king's word. Mm -hmm. That's our hope. That's our our safety, security, Mm -hmm. our rest in salvation, not some date that I have written in the front of my Bible. Those are good. Those are good signposts Yes. that say when I was eight year old, I, I did this, but we just baptized a guy on Sunday uh, who is 18, who we also baptized when he was eight. And he asked about getting baptized. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, we'll do that. And then uh, before the baptism thing, we have a class that they go through and uh, in between his uncle had sent me a picture of him getting baptized in 2012 I'm like, well, shoot, looks like we're not doing that on Sunday. And so uh, I'm like, now, what do you what do you think about, like, do you remember that you were baptized? And he had no memory of it. No. Like, as a kid where it's just gone. I'm like, well, this was, in effect, infant baptism that we did. And uh, 
there, there was no <laughs> active memory of it. So I'm like, yeah, all right. Gotcha. It was it was a strange moment, but I mean, I think that is how often does that happen with Christians where. Uh, they have some confession of faith and then no spiritual memory of it, no, no spiritual mm-hmm. impact on their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, that, a false characterization of Reformed theology, once saved, always saved, mm-hmm. which is true. If Christ holds you in his hand, who can take you out? Like that, that's where this book starts. Well, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of, the saints. Saved, of those who yeah. are actually saved. Perseverance in faith. Yeah. Like if you're actually saved. saved. All who are in Christ. Then right. yes. It, yeah. Those who claim to be saved, Absolutely not. Right. There's a ton of people who show up in all of our churches <laughs> who totally think they're saved because they pray to prayer sometime or have right. some general belief in mm-hmm. Jesus or God. The man upstairs. And that doesn't equal salvation. Guy. I think we have to be really careful yeah. to put our faith in Christ and daily take up our cross. Well, daily and, and this scripture here in Revelation 12 just illustrates how commitment to, to Jesus Christ, this moment when salvation is beginning to be realized in our hearts becomes formative so that from that day forward, everything we think, we say, and do is viewed through this lens that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And it is that revelation that becomes the guidelines of how I live the rest of my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a call to greater faithfulness. Yes. So it's probably a good place to wrap it up that uh, as Christians, as those who are part of the church, let's live lives that are uh, growing, increasing greater faithfulness to God, greater mm-hmm. faithfulness to his word. Amen. And that his name and his kingdom are glorified in the way that we live, in the way that our church uh, is a light in the midst of darkness. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for joining us. Bless you. And uh, we'll see you on Sunday. Thanks for joining our podcast. We pray that God would bless you and strengthen you through his word. If you'd like to find out more about EWC, or give tithes and offerings in support of this ministry, visit our website at edenworshipcenter.co.